You know God loves you, but do you feel loved? Is it important to feel it? And if so, what does it feel like? Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. Father, we just sing about running into your arms, the riches of your love always being enough for us, and nothing comparing to your embrace. Lord, I think that there are people here that have been believers for years and years and don't really have much of a concept at all of what any of that means. I know that I was uh, for so long, Lord, that language meant nothing to me. Running to your arms, what does that even mean? When you're not physically present. What is your embrace? What is it? If somebody is lonely and they don't have anybody to come home to, they don't have any family or anything, and how can the riches of your love be enough for somebody who's longing for a spouse or a friend? These questions are important because we don't want to just sing things and say things in church that have no connection with reality. But, Lord, you've showed me that these, these things do very much have connection with reality and important reality. And so I ask that you would open our eyes a little wider today to, to see these things so that after we look at this passage, it'll mean the world to us that we can run to your arms and nothing really will compare to your embrace and the riches of your love will be enough to satisfy the cravings of our soul. Please let that happen today. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you grew up singing, Jesus loves me? And so they said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a good thing to know that Jesus loves you because the Bible tells you so. But could you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, because I felt his love? I felt it. I know that he loves me because of the encouragement and the comfort that I have received from his love. We've been studying through the, the, the book of Philippians verse by verse. We come this morning now to chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at verse 1. Look at that verse. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and then that's the end of the verse. Um, before we finish the sentence... I mean, that's the first half of a sentence, right? So before we finish that sentence, let me just ask you. Have you? Have you? Have you experienced Christ's tenderness and compassion and comfort and encouragement? Do you feel loved by God? And what are the implications if the answer to that question is yes or no? The main purpose of the book of Philippians is, is the unity of the church. That's what Paul is shooting for. And unity requires a right perspective on suffering, for one thing. And so he's a right emotional response when you suffer. And so Paul has spent all of chapter 1 uh, teaching us how to do that by example, by watching him. Now, in chapter 2, he's going to give us the secret to unity in the church. And it's very simple, selfless humility. That's Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. There's the unity. And here's how. Verse 3. Doing nothing 
out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering others better than yourselves. Each of you looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A thousand problems in the church and in your marriage and in your relationships and friendships and your family relationships would disappear. A thousand problems would disappear if we simply put these verses into practice. Verses 3 and 4. But one of the things that prevents us from being able to do that is our attitude towards suffering. Uh, and so Paul's just been spent that first chapter helping us with that. How do we, he showed us, here's how I handle suffering, and it doesn't threaten my joy. Uh, and and so, um, so he sh- shows us that. But now, starting in, in chapter 2, now that we're no longer afraid of suffering, he's helped us with that. He showed us that it's actually a mark of defi- divine favor. Now he's going to give us the keys to unity through pursuing humility. And the heart and soul of chapter 2 is verses 3 and 4. Those verses are the objective. Pursue humility. Uh, verse 2, unity. Verse 3 and 4, humility. And then, and, and then the verses that follow... Starting in verse 5 and on, that's the example of humility. So, all of that just gives you the structure of chapter 2. This is the structure. You have first the uh, verses 2 through 4, are the, that's the objective. That's what we're going for. That's the goal. But verse 1 is the motive for that. And verses 5 and following are the example for that. Okay? So the motive is Jesus' love. The example is, is Jesus, the way that Jesus showed humility in verses 5 through 11. But before we look at verse 1 and we look at the motive, let's just take a moment to, to think through verses 3 through 4 because um, the motivation will mean more to us if we know what we're trying to be motivated to do, right? So uh, just a brief look here at verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Let go of pride and embrace humility. That's what he's saying there. Uh, verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is a staggering statement. Staggering. Each one of you should look not only to your own budget and financial stability, not only to your own family, not only your own health, your own reputation, your own education, your own success, your own happiness. Don't just think about that. Think about, don't, don't just have desires about that. Don't just have, don't just strategize your life around that, but think about and have desires for and strategize your life around the financial well-being and, and health and family and reputation and education and success and happiness of others. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you buy or sell something, are you as concerned about the other person getting a good deal as you are about you getting a good deal? If you're watching TV at the end of the day and your child comes and says, play with me, daddy, don't just think about how tired you are. Think about the interest of your child, not only your own interest, but the interest of your child. When somebody does something to you that is insulting or irritating to you, don't just think about yourself. What are their interests? What would benefit them the most right now in your response, now that they've insulted you? What would benefit them? What can I do or say that would, when they, tonight, when they put their head on their pillow, they would be able to say, yeah, this was a really good day because, because of the way I responded to that. 
This just sounds almost impossible, doesn't it, to live this way? It's hard enough just to concern myself with my own interests. How could I ever get to the point of having this kind of humility and selfless love? It's going to require some very powerful motivation, and that's where verse 1 comes in. Our motivation is the tenderness and the kindness and love of God. That's what that's what's going to be that's what's going to be required in order to be motivated to be able to do this. We're going to have to experience that. Verse one is made up of four if statements, and in the Greek, there's actually no verbs in the whole verse. Literally, it's just it's therefore if any comfort in Christ, if any comfort of love, or any, any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any tenderness uh, or compassion and mercy, then. And then he goes on to tell them, then uh, be unified in humility. That's the second part of the sentence. Why all the if statements? And why does he keep saying any? I mean, why does he say if there's any encouragement in Christ rather than since there is a lot of encouragement in Christ? Isn't that what you would expect? Since there's a great deal of encouragement and love from Christ, therefore be unified. Why does he say if any? Here's why. It's an understatement. He's, Paul is using understatement on purpose to, and it's designed in a way that's designed to have an emotional impact on you. Imagine two little bro- two brothers, two little boys fighting and bickering and yelling at each other uh, right at the moment when dad comes home from work. So he walks in the door, they're fighting, father walks in, sees them arguing, looks over at his wife, she's at the point of tears. And so he gets down on one knee and pulls the two brothers close to him and says, uh, guys, look at your mom. Look at her. Do you know how it makes her feel when you fight like that? Do you want to break her heart? I'll tell you what. Guys, from now until you go to bed tonight, let me just ask you, if your mother has ever been nice to you, ever, if, if, if she has ever once done a single thing to help you, if she's ever changed your diapers or when you were little or, or, or cooked a meal for you or ever did your laundry or ever did anything nice for you at all, then would you just make her happy and make me happy by showing some kindness to each other? Can you see the impact? Can you see how that would be a little different saying it that way instead of just saying, since your mother has shown you a lot of kindness, therefore show kindness to each other? One's kind of a logical reasoning. The other one has emotional impact. The meaning is essentially the same, but the impact is greater. When you understate it, if she's ever once been nice to you, because when you hear it that way, what are you, what, what, what are your, what's your response going to naturally be? Ever once? she's been nice to us a million times. And they'll start thinking that way. You pull it to the the small end and then they're going to react in their mind to to pull it back to the big end. And that's the direction he wants them to be going. And they're going to start thinking that way and they'll be motivated not to break her heart. That's exactly Paul's strategy in in verse 1. When he says, if there's any encouragement uh, at all in Christ, if he's ever given you any comfort, any love, any fellowship, any compassion, any mercy at all, then stop fighting each other and be unified in humility in the church. And he expects us to respond to that by saying, what do you mean, if any? He's showing me unfathomable love. And mercy and tenderness. 
beyond description. See, the normal Christian life should be to be able to say what the psalmist said in Psalm 94, 19. When anxiety was great within me, your encouragement brought joy to my soul. That's just a natural, something really painful happens, anxiety rises up inside my soul, then I receive encouragement from God, and that brings joy back to my soul. That's how life is with God. That's how it's supposed to work for the Christian. It's supposed to follow that pattern. We get upset, we lose our joy, he encourages us, joy comes back. That's the pattern. But what if that's not your normal experience? What should you do? I mean, what if you read verse 1, and instead of it working, instead of you just having this natural gut instinct that says, oh, no, what do you mean, if any, there's tons of it. What if your natural instinct is to say, "Uh, actually, there isn't all that much comfort from Christ. I'm just being honest. I know I'm a true child of God. I know I'm born again, but I, I don't feel much tenderness or love, or compassion, or mercy from him. If that's the case, that's a real problem because because our whole motivation for everything he's going to call us to do in this book comes from this. And if we don't have very much encouragement or comfort or mercy, feeling mercy from God, we're not going to have the motivation we need to live this kind of humble, selfless way towards each other. This section starting in verse 5 about Jesus' humiliation, his self-emptying, the kenosis passage. That passage, that's one of the most famous, famous passages in, in, the, in, the, in the whole Bible. The motivation verse, in verse 1, that's one of the least fav- famous passages in the whole Bible. We tend to neglect passages like this. That's, that's not to say that the topic of God's love is neglected in the church. You hear plenty of teaching about God's love as a theological fact. But what you don't hear nearly as much in evangelical circles is the experience of God's love. We're really big on duty. We make a big deal about the command. Verses 2 through 4, we're real big on that. We're real big on the example in verses 5 to 11. Yeah, Jesus did that. I want to follow in his steps. I'm going to do that. We're all revved up about duty. But then when we go to carry out the duty, we fall flat on our face because we've neglected verse 1. Verse 1 is what we need in order to be able to be successful in carrying out this duty. So if we haven't had a profound enough experience of God's love and his tenderness... We're not going to be equipped to follow Christ's example of humility. We don't use experience to uh, determine truth. That's the error that, that we want to avoid. That is, you start using your experiences. It's like, oh, I had this religious experience. That must be from God. Uh, you, don't, you never use experience to find out what's true. You use the Bible alone to find out what's true. But... Once you learn what's true, you're not done. Truth isn't the final goal. Truth is what we use to get to the final goal. The final goal is experience. I don't want to... The whole point of discovering truth is so that you can experience what it's talking about. I don't want to just learn about heaven. I want to go there. I don't want to just... I just don't want to just have information about salvation. I want to be saved, right? I don't want to just memorize facts about forgiveness of sins. I want to be forgiven. I don't want to just be aware that God loves me. 
I want to have the encouragement and the comfort and the endurance and the joy that the Bible says I will have when I have satisfying experiences of his love. It's not enough to know information about the spring of living water. At some point, we need to stop analyzing it and start drinking. Have you settled for just being aware that God loves you without actually experiencing the encouragement and comfort, endurance and joy that come from routinely experiencing his love for you? We all know it's possible to be loved and not feel loved, right? If someone loves you deeply and so they sent you an anonymous gift, you might love the gift, but it wouldn't really do anything to increase your love for that person because you wouldn't know they were involved. That's how we receive most of God's gifts, as if they were anonymous. But none of them are anonymous. God's Word tells us where they come from and what they mean. So make it your goal today to be on a quest to experience God's love for you. Pay attention to His gestures of kindness and have as many delightful experiences of His love for you as you possibly can So you can begin to know by experience this love that surpasses mere intellectual knowledge. I don't know why you chose me to be the object of your special family love, Father, but I'm so grateful to you for it. Thank you for loving me. Forgive me for so often taking it for granted or ignoring it altogether. Or tributing it. Or attributing it to good luck or some other source. Awaken me to it, Father. Teach me to see it more and more. I know I'll never see all of it, not even in heaven, because I'll never have an infinite mind. But I will see more and more of it for all eternity. Thank you, Father that I'll never get to to an end where there's no more over the next horizon. Never-ending increase. Even after a billion years in heaven, my best days will still be ahead of me. Thank you for the good day that's ahead of me right now. You have so many gestures of your love planned out. Tasty food delightful interactions with the people I love, opportunities to work alongside you in matters of your kingdom, fresh air, sweet rest, fruitful labor, new insights. Open my eyes to see as many of them as I possibly can today, Father. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me, Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. 
You hem me in, behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And when I awake, I am still with you. Father, you are so good to the pure in heart. Give me a sign of your goodness. You've helped me and comforted me. How can I repay you for all your goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on your name. I will praise you, O Lord. I will join the holy ones in extolling you. We will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. You are faithful to all your promises and loving toward all you have made. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the book of Philippians. 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.